0: Welcome to Magnificast. This is a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics, and uh, this week it's also about two guys trying not to cough into their microphones. (laughs) That's right, this is the special We're Really Sick edition of the Magnificast.
1: (laughs) (laughs) November 1, what up? 500 years of Reformation, we still couldn't get past uh, the common cold. Yeah, that's right. Uh, And it made us sick.
0: Oh, no. <laughs> uh, well, anyways, I'm Matt. I teach media studies at Greenville University in Greenville, Illinois. My research interests are, as usual, media archaeology, cultural theory, <laughs> and uh, very much Christianity
1: and leftist politics. Uh, I'm Dean. I'm a Catholic PhD student in philosophy at the Institute for Christian Studies in Toronto. And uh, I research all kinds of things. I write as a journalist and. Uh, Let's see. What else What else am I doing this week? Um, oh, my cat also got sick. One of my cats. That oh, man. That is a uh, new research interest, trying to figure out why your cat winks all the time. No, um, is that real? Is that what your cat does? Yeah, just winking at me all the time. And uh, we took him to the vet for a very expensive bill. Um, it turns out uh, cats do not have socialized medicine here in Canada yet. Um, but uh, yeah, he's sick. So now we got to put this like gunk in his eye two times a day. He's not happy about that neither no. are we no wow <laughs> what a th- what a tale what a story yeah, i know so that's my research interest this week cat, yeah. cat winks cat winks uh,
0: at least it's kind of cute though
1: it is actually very cute and he's extremely forgiving like basically we just traumatize him two times a day and then he's like can someone please like hold me still though that would be fine <laughs> it's like that's better than the alternative that's some good stuff
0: hey do canadians
1: celebrate halloween do you guys halloween up there uh, yeah, we do. We do celebrate it. Um, I live in, like, an apartment complex, and nobody ever knocks on our door, but uh, at the comic book shop where I work, they get um Halloween comic books, and uh, kids come in costumed up. It's pretty, pretty oh, good. That's awesome. That's good. Good job. Good job, Canada.
0: So, we took Lewis trick-or-treating this week, and, uh, like, we... They have like this thing in Greenville uh, where there's like a trunk or treat and like all of the like, local <laughs> businesses and churches like will meet on the square and like give you candy from the back of a car. It sounds sketchy, nice. but it's good. Uh, <laughs> well, like one of the churches in town was there. I mean, all of the churches were there, but there's one in particular that did not hand out candy, but handed out cross
1: necklaces. Mm-hmm. Dude, I, I, was lo- I
0: was losing it. That's not OK. <laughs> you can't. What did do- Lewis think about it? Uh, like he just put it in his bag and said, thanks. And like, cause he's too polite. Uh, also cause he doesn't understand the expectation of candy yet. But, <laughs> uh, listen churches, you can't, uh, you can't do that. This is like my public, uh, putting you on blast. You cannot just hand out whatever you want at Halloween. You have to hand out candy. It's the law.
1: Or you, you have just to ha- hand out the, the most terrifying chick tracks.
0: One of the two. No, That's no it. necklaces. Unless
1: they're <laughs> edible. Unless they're edible necklaces. But maybe keep those to yourself this uh this week we are not um talking about halloween though we should have probably made an episode about the reformation or something but also we didn't um yeah, instead that's fine. we decided to talk about cuba um we were just too too excited after we talked to george last week about venezuela we we're like what other uh social states in latin america can we dig up so we uh checked out checked out cuba this week we're
0: specifically talking about a book uh, called Fidel and Religion, uh, Conversations with Frey Beto on Marxism and Liberation Theology. It's kind of a big deal book. I didn't really know it until Dean uh, directed my attention to it. But we read it, and there's lots of really interesting and good stuff in there about um, leftism and Christianity and uh, Cuba, uh, Cuban, Cuban Marxism and Christianity. So we're going to just kind of talk through some of that. Um, but before uh, – before we even do that, um, the world has provided us a very nice segue into this conversation. Uh, there's some like big Cuban news today. Dean, what what happened?
1: Yeah, so the UN, I don't know if you've heard of it, the United Nations. Um, oh, yeah. Turns out they are not uh, not fully united all the time. This is just uh, one more example. So there was a vote today about, um, we're recording this obviously not on Friday, everyone, surprise. We're uh, lift, lifting back the veil here a little bit, but... Um, today, November 1st, there was a vote uh, at the UN, and it was about the US uh, lifting an, an embargo blockade on Cuba that they've had for like over half a century, and it has not been good for Cubans. And 191 countries said they should do it at the UN. They should lift that blockade. And two countries said that they should not, the United States and Israel. So, that's What an
0: incredibly spiteful vote. <laughs> was like, the most spiteful vote. Going into this, like, they knew, like, they knew that that was what it was going to be. Like, y- the United States and Israel knew that that was, like, what their vote was going to be. And, <laughs> like, so did everyone else. And they are just like, well, I guess we're going to do it anyways. And, like, here you go. It's such, yeah. a, such a, like, stupid political theater. Like, um, people's actual lives and, like, material realities could be uh, bettered by uh, taking that embargo down. But, uh, guess not.
1: Yeah, I especially love that the United States doesn't even try to, like, make an appeal or make a case or, it, like, show up and, you know, lobby for other votes. Because it knows that it actually doesn't have a leg to stand on. It's just like, listen, we hate them. What what, what <laughs> do we get about that world? We don't like them.
0: Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, so, uh, there's a lot of articles you could probably go read about this today and in the coming days. Um, after I say this, I'm sure, like, a better article will even be written. But, uh... In uh, Telusser, like my uh, preferred uh, news source, I guess at this moment in, in time, uh, Telusser <laughs> has a great article about it uh, that kind of um, outlines some of the some of the uh, theatrics of the situation. Uh, let me read this little bit here because it's it's pretty interesting, I think. Um, so the 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 continuation of the embargo is largely on the grounds uh, that Cuba. Um, Uh, that Cuba has like a questionable human rights record. And uh, I mean, I guess that's probably true, Um, but this is, uh, this is some, some of the back and forth today that I really appreciate. Okay. So the article says Cuba's foreign minister, Bruno Rodriguez approached the podium to an abundance of applause. He responded to us ambassador Nikki Haley's comments by stating that the United States has no moral ground to stand on in its condemnation of the Caribbean Island due to its flagrant violation of human rights. (laughs) <laughs> Citing the arrest and deportation of minors and undocumented immigrants, the killing of African-Americans by U.S. police, the lack of guarantees for education and health care and restrictions on union organizing, and the refusal of U.S. companies to sell life-saving medical supplies to Cuban healthcare care services. All right. So, like, Cuba is, pro- is, like, a country that's not perfect. um, But they get, like, villainized in this really intense way. And what I appreciate, I think, about this statement is that... Um, Maybe there's a maybe there's like a another narrative that we might pay attention here to there are other there are other violations of human rights going on in other countries that we don't pay attention to because of a uh increasingly um hard to ignore liberal double standard um yeah, I mean you
1: know. nobody's calling for like a blockade against the United States um using the same logic that the u s uses to punish other countries like um in Cuba it's an obvious case of human rights violations but like on the part of the u.s like they don't have a um a ground there but uh it's also weird like they were thinking about threatening to sanction russia over like meddling in elections allegedly or whatever and if every country that had ever had the u.s meddle in their elections like put an embargo against them it would be pretty pretty big (laughs) yeah yeah no kidding yeah
0: okay so Cuba's story isn't exceptional in the grand scheme of uh, Caribbean islands uh, and colonization. Uh, it's pretty comparable to like a lot of other places. Uh, the indigenous people that were occupying the island were colonized by the Spanish in the 15th century. Um, I mean, just kind of like uh, Puerto Rico or um, other, other places. Uh, Cuba operated sure. as like a Spanish colony until the Spanish-American War. That's a war that we like to forget happened. Um, but when it did... Uh, when it did, uh, Cuba gained like a little bit of independence, was still basically beholden to the United States. However, uh, with that little bit of getting better, things also got overwhelmingly worse when a cruel dictator uh, with the last name Batista ruled over the island until he was ousted by 1959, uh, in 1959 by Fidel and all of those good revolutionary boys, and the 26th of July movement. Was- yeah, I mean, of course, all of them. <laughs> all of them are in there. Um, <laughs> It's uh, it's Cuba is like noteworthy today, I think, because it's uh, I think to my knowledge, at least, and maybe I'm wrong, but it's like one of the few remaining Marxist-Leninist states. There's an overwhelming like amount of negative propaganda about Cuba. We talked about some of that like a few seconds ago about, just I don't know, the United States can like uh, trash them because like they don't like them or whatever. Um, it's certainly true that Cuba is not a perfect country and there's nothing wrong noting uh, the government repression because that's real and we should pay attention um human rights of organizations have made uh that all public knowledge and you can like look it up elsewhere uh however we should take these things into context a little bit despite all of that u.s propaganda life in cuba doesn't actually seem so bad all the time for regular people uh the human development index which is i mean definitely like a liberal statistical tool but interesting nonetheless uh it it uh, it notes like some analyses on life expectancy, education, income of individuals and countries. It lists Cuba at number eight in North America, so that's kind of interesting. Um, we get some statistical data that's like a little bit uh, different than uh, the sort of propaganda stories that we hear over and over again. Uh, Cuba is also known for its access to healthcare and education. Um, has an incredibly high and probably. Uh, probably too high. Actually, literacy rate. It's a, they say that like ninety nine percent of people are literate, and I don't know if that's actually possible. But I don't know. That's what I'd say. <laughs> maybe. Uh, yeah, maybe. Uh, the most interesting thing that I learned about Cuba, kind of doing a little bit of research here, is that in two thousand six, Cuba was the only country that the World Wildlife Federation said met like sustainability standards as a country like developing. So that's pretty neat. That is I don't pretty know. neat. So I don't know. We the only the only reason I'm saying these things is that like there's all this kind of like uh negative propaganda that we usually just use to like um other an entire like island of people but i think that
1: uh that is wrong to do (laughs) yeah i think it's especially important for americans to do some double takes when it comes to cuba uh when i moved to canada it was funny i was talking to a professor just uh in passing um you know casually and he was talking about the last vacation he and his family took and they had gone to cuba and I said, whoa, that's pretty weird. And he's like, not really. Like people go to Cuba. Uh, he he was like, it's a lot cheaper than going to Florida. I don't know. Is that what you guys do? And I was like, yeah, we like when I grew up, went to Disney World sometimes and stuff. And uh, he was like, no, we go to Cuba. Uh, it's really fun. It's like a cool place to be. Uh, and also there are no Americans there, which is pretty cool, too. <laughs> and uh, like Emily was talking one time. Emily's my partner. She's a nanny. Uh, about how like she would see all these kids at school wearing like Cuba hats, and, like Cuba T shirts and stuff. Like it was just a regular place that people went. And for me, that was just like a very weird thing because, I mean, I couldn't imagine. Like I literally couldn't go to Cuba when I first moved here. Actually, that hadn't like panned out yet. So, right. It's a pretty weird thing. Yeah, that is weird. Um,
0: hopefully someday we can like actually go. Yeah. As American citizens. <laughs> you just uh, have to uh, become entrepreneurs. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose that's uh that's about it, right? <laughs> cool. That's like some introductory material, I guess, on uh Cuba. Uh I don't know. If you are not familiar with Cuba as a country, you should go check some stuff out. Uh do some urine research. I think that's worth it. Uh like Dean said, it's like important for Americans to do that kind of double take because uh we have a history of getting it wrong and uh getting it wrong for some pretty divisive political reasons. Um so Check it out. <laughs> um, but anyways, we're going to talk about this book uh, called Fidel and Religion. Dean, do you want to talk about why it's important and like interesting? Yeah.
1: So Fidel and Religion is a cool book. It is a, an edited transcription of interviews done between Fry Beta, who's a Dominican priest from Brazil, and he is a very amazing person in his own right. He worked with Paulo Freire, who's a radical um, educational theorist to teach peasants how to read and advocate for themselves and has done a lot of really interesting work. Um, But he went to Cuba and had these conversations with Fidel. He talks about it in the introduction, like kind of how it all came together, but it's a really fascinating exchange because Fidel comes out in the interview as, you know, um, very open to religious people. And he admits there's mistakes in Cuba on the part of how the revolutionary government has handled the church. And then also provides, I think some very important challenges to, christian people and to uh christian movements in general um trying to understand for example why marxism has been anti-religious in many cases um trying to understand how christians can actually help uh contribute to liberation movements and the book really made a huge difference it was a bestseller in latin america it was a pretty huge deal um it made some waves in cuba itself in fact after it was published a little while later the communist party of cuba opened up its membership for Christians to join, which was previously not possible. Um, and also, Frybeto, Beto, after publishing this book, traveled around to other uh, communist states, most notably the USSR, um, to talk to those governments about religion. So it's a, like a pretty formative moment in time for relationships between leftists and Christians. Uh, cool. So the
0: book opens up with uh, Frey Beto just like kind of hanging out with his journalist, and there's like lots of interesting sort of background information about cuba going on uh, this conversation there's a it's largely a transcription of this conversation between uh, a journalist and fidel but after that kind of first part of the book is over it's, it's interesting enough it's a good way to kind of like get yourself familiar with uh cuba itself but after that part so part is over uh fry Beto starts just kind of like uh getting fidel to open up about his childhood and uh and Christianity and like how that kind of like played a role in the uh, pre revolutionary Cuba. um, It's pretty interesting. I mean, to hear like what it's like um, through, through sort of like Fidel stories, you can kind of figure out what it's like, uh, like what uh, the sort of Christian culture was in Cuba. And uh, it's pretty striking, I guess. So Dean, and I do a little bit of fact checking here, but kind of came up with some uh, conclusions that, I mean, that Fidel is telling the truth. Uh, so maybe the most important <laughs> the important thing, I don't know. Uh the most important thing uh to kind of start off with is that like uh in the rural spots in Cuba, they were like not really churches. So that's pretty bizarre. Um like not I guess what one would one would expect. Um there's weren't very many country like countryside churches. Um there weren't many priests that visited the countryside. Uh the way that Fidel paints the picture is that uh Catholicism, uh specifically, but um, you know, like Protestants too, uh were largely an urban uh uh a staple of urban life and were an incredibly like bourgeois type of faith. Uh which is not surprising in sort of like the pre revolutionary period in Cuba. That I guess makes sense to me.
1: But it is uh unique in terms of Latin America because it's You get the impression that Catholicism isn't as kind of thickly ingrained um, across all classes um, as it is in many other parts of Latin America.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Um, It's also so I mean, we did some double checking and like that is actually uh, a really true thing. It's not just Fidel's observation, but uh, uh, but Cuba had like the least priests of uh, most of the South American countries. So that's an interesting thing.
1: Yeah, I think that context is actually really helpful uh, anyway for Fidel to make those observations because it plays into a lot of interesting questions that Freibetta will end up asking. Like, uh, by this time that they've done the interview, this is in the mid-80s, um, Nicaragua, for example, has already had its revolution, which is a very thickly Christian socialist revolution. Um, in Chile, there were loads and loads of Christians who supported the socialist uh, movements there, and uh, Fidel is aware of all of them, whereas in in Cuba... When he was, you know, becoming a revolutionary, uh, the church just wasn't really part of life in the same sort of way. And uh, I think it just brings up a lot of interesting, like a lot of interesting angles on what is going on with uh, Catholicism in Cuba and uh, how it did and didn't help um, class struggles there. Yeah. Um, Here's a good quote from the book that kind of um, elaborates
0: on what we're saying here. Uh, So this is from Fidel. He says, All those Jesuits uh, were rightists. Some were obviously kind people who expressed solidarity with others. They were exemplary in many ways, but ideologically they were right-wing pro-Franco reactionaries. There was no one left-wing Jesuit in Cuba at that time. Uh, So it gives you kind of an idea (laughs) of, like, the character of Christianity in Cuba uh, pre-Revolution.
1: Yeah, and those are the Jesuits that educated Fidel. He went to a Jesuit school. So leading up to the revolution and especially deposing Batista and then setting up what ended up being a Marxist-Leninist state. Uh, The revolution wasn't Marxist-Leninist at first, by the way, it's kind of an interesting thing. Um, But anyway, leading up to it, uh, Catholics didn't really form like a huge uh, contingent of supporters necessarily. Um, And that's why Fidel, I guess, didn't really seem that interested in you know talking about it openly before but what I think is so cool about this book is that he continued to follow what Christians were doing around the uh, the continent in Latin America and uh, also tried to cultivate relationships with the church afterwards in complicated sort of ways and uh, I think that's really the value of this book actually is kind of getting a window into not just uh, the history behind you know church relationships in Cuba or whatever But more getting a window into what someone like Fidel Castro, who's a very important, influential Marxist leader, actually thinks about revolution and Christianity and the potentials for confluences there.
0: Uh, Yeah, totally. Uh, It's just it's interesting that uh, that like hard atheism that you expect from, I don't know, Marxist leaders does not come through (laughs) at all. Right. Like, um, yeah, I guess like um, one one observation we can kind of draw from this episode, um, from the one with, you know, with Jonathan a few weeks ago, is just like that relationship between religion and communism is actually pretty complicated in some ways and also not complicated at all in other ways. Um, that there's like never actually a, an objection to theism as like sort of a metaphysical ideology and more just always objections to uh, like the political power that churches have.
1: Yeah, that's right. I remember uh, there was some stuff in the Lenin essays that we read a while back with Derek Ford about religion, where Lenin basically says, it doesn't really matter what people think is going to happen to them after they die. We don't care about that in the revolution. It just matters that like we got to figure this out right now. The material problems of production have to get solved, and you can believe whatever you want about like your soul. Um, and Fidel kind of echoes something like that in this book. Um, like He talks about how... Uh, Confrontations between religion and revolutionary movements mostly stem from actual material conditions. Religion can be used by imperialism to uh, basically poison regular people against revolutionary movements, and vice versa. Revolution, rightly, I think, in a lot of cases, views religion as a threat in those cases because it is being a threat. Um, and I think what's very fascinating is both Fidel and Lenin and others. Uh, are at least capable of separating out the the possibility that religion doesn't have to be, you know, totally uh, totally opposed to revolutionary movements or parties or people.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, skipping ahead just like a little bit. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, Freybedo and Fidel they talk through Fidel's uh, childhood. And they spend a lot of time talking about like what the religious schools were like and like what Jesuit training was like. Um, uh, Freybedo is really interested just to hear about like how how catholic culture kind of played out in pre-revolutionary cuba and that's all pretty interesting um (laughs) or you know like whatever uh but i think the the more interesting and relevant stuff kind of comes post-revolution so maybe we can kind of jump into talking about that um so i don't really want to lay out like what like the timeline of the revolution or like the 26th of july movement uh you guys can just go read about somewhere else um go look up a Uh, The Party for Socialism and Liberation has a really good liberation school kind of bit about uh, um, the Cuban Revolution. So go check it out. There are people who uh, are trustworthy to tell you about the revolution for sure. (laughs) Um, anyways, uh, so there's this bit in the book called the Catholic church and revolution and, uh, Fidel kind of talks a little bit about like what happened after the revolution and like kind of where some of the tensions with Christianity kind of came up, um, in the Cuban revolution. This is what Fidel says, kind of framing the larger situation. Uh, so after the revolution, uh, it may be said that Batista's toppling was welcomed with joy by every social group without exception, including the elements that had been committed to Batista's regime. The people who had grown wealthy through dishonest means, who had stolen, and uh, some sectors of the upper bourgeoisie that had been closely associated with Batista's regime, at least 95% of the population, several polls were taking the time. They were glad to hear the news. Okay, so people were psyched. People were like, we're very into the revolution. Um, It's hard not to be, honestly. I mean, revolutions, they are are exciting. Um, And uh,
1: dictators are not great.
0: Yeah, I know, right? Like it's, it seems uh it seems uh pretty easy to get excited about uh, the toppling of a dictator. Love love it. Love when that happens. Um, but however, the difficulties all began with the first revolutionary laws. So, um, this is kind of interesting to me. I think, uh, specifically as like a Christian educator, uh, someone who works at a uh, a Christian school, it's a little bit uh tense. So, um some of the first executive laws are about like the reappropriation of land, um, you know, away from, uh, the ruling elites, the bourgeoisie that were holding them previously. Um, but the more troubling part where things got a little more hairy, even, even more hairy than the, uh, the reappropriation of property, uh, was with the problem of, uh, schools and the problem specifically of Catholic schools. Um, so uh, something that's always been central to uh, Marxist-Leninist, I think just leftists in general, is the accessibility and universality of education. That's a super important tenet of, like, basically every leftist ideology. Um, I mean, even in the manifesto, one of the things that Marx demands in the, at the end is, like, that there should be universal and free education. So it's really no surprise that uh, Fidel and uh, the, like, newly formed government would take over the schools. But they did. Uh, and people were not super pleased about that, um, especially because the schools that they're taking over were like largely private and Catholic schools. Does that sound right, Dean?
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's right.
0: So the when uh, the revolutionary government takes over the schools, that's kind of where the conflict begins between the government and the church and. It's kind of interesting. So, I mean, it's like uh, the church doesn't like when it's kind of questioned in terms of its property or power or status in uh, uh, in any kind of given region. And this is definitely something that would upset them. Um, so to give you a little bit of a hint and kind of window into why um, the churches were mad about the uh, seizing of the schools, uh, Fidel explains it like this. He says religion in Cuba was disseminated, propagated mainly through private schools, that is schools run by religious orders. The schools I mentioned uh, yesterday, so that's when he was talking about his childhood, um, which were attended by children of the wealthiest families in the country, the members of the old aristocracy or those who considered themselves aristocrats, the children of the upper middle class and the part of the middle class in general. So the problem was like that was uh, the schools were sort of like um, not only like the center of like religious power, but also of economic power. Uh, there's lots of hegemony kind of radiating, radiating out from the schools. There are also not just Catholic schools are also Protestant schools. I think there are even some like secular private schools as well. Yeah, but they were all appropriated um, by the revolutionary government. And uh, basically, what Fidel goes on to say is that uh, they didn't seize them because they were religious. They seized them because they were like centers and hotbeds for reactionary thought after the revolution. Right. Um. So Fidel explains it, uh, along the lines of like it's not it's not that they were like Christians that was the problem. The problem was that they were reactionaries, um, and that was the real rub there. Um, I find that pretty interesting, again, because it kind of speaks against that narrative that's often pushed of, like, a staunchly atheist Communist Party, which, I mean, it is true that they are atheists, but they're atheists not for, like, the theological reasons that people care about, but because of political reasons.
1: Yeah, that's right. Um, I think that's also really interesting because you can just imagine Fidel, you know, the day before he was basically talking about how when he was a kid all of his teachers were Francoists. Like, they were supporting a Catholic fascist regime. Um, So you can just imagine how that would feed into thinking about what you would do about Catholic education (laughs) after the revolution. Um, Like, you just can't expect Francoists to be able to freely educate uh, Francoism in a revolutionary situation. Um, So I think that's kind of an interesting point.
0: Yeah, it's also also one that actually makes sense if you think about it. Like, in... um... Even in, like, the liberal, liberal, like, United States, I mean, like, we see this type of repression play out all the time. Like, um, people are, like, censured and uh, fired and, like, let go for teaching the sort of wrong ideology. I don't know. It shouldn't be surprising that it also happens other places.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. Um, it's not surprising that the state wants to, you know... I guess, protect its interests. It's just that some of those states are better than others.
0: Yeah. Um, even to prove this whole this whole bit about schools uh, in general and sort of Fidel's take on religion here, um, this is, again, from the book, kind of taking another good quote from Fidel. Um, he says, it wasn't just the Catholic and Protestant schools. All schools were nationalized. So they weren't targeting religions. They were just targeting schools. Right. Um, so then he goes on to say, though, that... Um, I'm not, uh, he says, I'm not saying, stating, or suggesting that private schools must necessarily be nationalized if the families that send their children to those schools have no antagonism toward the revolution. Um. But if schools have become hotbeds of counter revolutionary activity, especially when those activities become violent and linked to sabotage bombs and other CIA activities with the CIA moving around everywhere, um, then they're like then they're problems. It's, it's even even more interesting, too, because he goes on to say that the socialist state could even have schools that charged fees if this were deemed advisable, as long as there were enough free schools for the rest of the children and the free ones weren't worse than the others. So right. there's actually like a really interesting nuance here um, about education uh in like a Marxist Leninist state um and also religious edu- education too that like um private school isn't even necessarily an opposition as long as it's not bad
1: right right yeah, I think it's just it helps to read Fidel's actual thoughts on this because um it's just more complicated than someone being like uh you can just imagine someone kind of repeating a line about well Cuba took away like this the schools the Catholic schools there, and it's like, well yeah, but I mean like why should he not have i guess
0: <laughs> yeah i mean i think that's right i mean the, the whole reason that i mean that's how that's how marxism works that's why like that's why marxists like seize the government and like seize the state and the anarchists don't because like they think that you need to seize the state so you have the right apparatuses to protect the revolution and this is exactly just that playing out
1: yeah that's right. um So I want to go on to talk about what Fidel thinks about religion in general in a minute. But before that, uh, I just want to go back to how Fidel explains the opposition between leftist people and thinkers and religion in general. Um, He has a really cool quote later in the book where he says, uh, this is like kind of a a paragraphy passage, but it's good. So I'm going to read it. He says, uh, analyzing it from a historical perspective, nobody can deny that the church was on the side of the conquerors, oppressors and exploiters historically. It never categorically denounced slavery, an institution that is so repugnant to our consciences now. There was never a denunciation condemning the slavery of Africans or indigenous people. The church never denounced the extermination of the aboriginal population or any of the other crimes that were committed against those people. The fact that they were robbed of their land, wealth, culture, and even their lives. None of the churches denounced those crimes, and the system lasted for centuries. No wonder the revolutionary ideas that emerged in the struggle against those age-old injustices had an anti-religious spirit. I think that's just a very good way of summarizing why you would not like religion if uh, you were fighting against injustices, especially before the 20th century.
0: Right. I mean, that that reminds me exactly of that episode we did about Herbert McCabe. And uh, yeah, I mean, what he says too, right, like like Christians are all about talking about nonviolence and uh, resistance to injustice. But they'll never talk about the uh, the resistance like to injustice uh, or like, against capitalism. Right. They'll never like they'll never actually realize um the sort of systemic things going on there that like Christians just sort of okay with.
1: And not only okay with, but in many cases like bulwark. Like in a lot of yeah. like colonialism yeah. and slavery, that was done for Christian reasons by Christian people. Um I mean there were in there were exceptions, there were Christians who opposed it, but like by and large, it was Christians who built and, you know, maintained those uh brutal <laughs> structures of oppression. So it makes sense why someone would uh, feel the need to struggle against uh, religious institutions and even belief, I guess.
0: Okay, so on that point, that, like, sort of dislike um, that revolutionaries, especially in Cuba, had for religion uh, comes out in a, uh, I guess, materialized way. Um, there's a kind of, I don't know, I don't know exactly how to read it, but kind of a funny interchange between uh, uh, Freibeto and Fidel Castro. Uh, Freibeto says at one point, uh, well, I guess he just asked the question, is it true that Christians aren't allowed to belong to the Cuban Communist Party? And then Castro says, "That's right." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um. I mean, you said uh, you said a bit ago that like that was changed after this book, and that is very cool, uh, in fact. But uh, you can't deny that they were not they were yeah. not allowed, right? Yeah. Um, totally. So so that's interesting. Again, though, just like with the same sort of the same logic, we see. Um, The same logic we see with the conversation about schools. Uh, Again, Christians weren't uh, not accepted into the Communist Party because they were Christians, because they believed in Jesus Christ, because they uh, took Eucharist. They weren't like excluded for any of those reasons. Again, they were excluded because most Christians in the country were also reactionaries. That's why not their religious power, but their political power was the problem.
1: Yeah, and he does say that, um, like, he recognizes that there were Christians fighting in the revolution against Batista, and he's like, we just didn't really care at that point because we had other things to worry about. Um, But uh, he goes on to say, I'm not saying that, like, Catholics can't be revolutionaries. They just can't be part of our party. That's it. And uh, I think that's also a pretty interesting qualification. Like, he doesn't have anything against Catholics in Cuba uh, being there and being you know, supportive of the communist regime or whatever. It's just that uh, that's, I don't know, that's a complicated issue. Also, after this book came out and the party changed its stance, many of the members of the communist party said that they were Catholics or they were Christians anyway, and um, they just hadn't said so when they were members. So that's a kind of funny anecdote, I guess.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's just the thing from Lenin playing out all over again. Like, I don't know. Yeah. They, you, they don't really care what you believe. Uh, it's just about, like, can you get down? Can you get down with this right. this good, good revolution? Right. Um, yeah. Uh, Fidel even goes on to say this rule was established as a result of the circumstances, not, again, for, like, ideological reasons. If you were to ask me, does this have to be so? I'd say, no, it doesn't. And guess what? Yeah. It wasn't.
1: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: so, there you, yeah, there yeah. you go. All right, yep, so that's, um, that's all pretty interesting stuff. There's, uh, I definitely when I was reading this, got way down in like the sort of interesting minutia of the inner workings of like the electoral system in Cuba. <laughs> there is one, because uh, I guess, like, I guess I'm a nerd about that kind of stuff. But Dean, uh, instead of talking about that, will you please, uh, will you please transition us uh, with one of your uh, <laughs> world-renowned transitions into yeah. uh, some of the comments that Fidel makes about theology or liberation theology in general?
1: Yeah, uh, here it comes. So, uh, if this is your first time listening to this podcast, um, you're in for a treat because the reason I'm a master at Segways is I just refuse to uh, I refuse to let them have power over me. Uh, we're we're the ones in the driver's seat here, and now <laughs> this is what we're talking about: liberation <laughs> theology. Now we're here. Look, it was so easy. We got it was the, the transition. of confidence. Yeah, we're uh, seizing seizing the means of transitioning here. Um, <laughs> So Fidel followed liberation theology as it developed in Latin America, which is really fascinating. He mentions at one point to that he like owns all the books by Leonardo Boff and Gustavo Gutierrez, um, which is pretty cool. Uh, and then he also says that he thinks liberation theology is basically, in his opinion, Christianity finding its roots again, finding its originary impulses. And he has a lot to say in this book about early Christians in Rome and how he just thinks that they're very cool. And uh, there's a lot sort of symbolically in common between early Christians and, in his case, contemporary communists. Um, but I think what I just found so fascinating was that he clearly has uh, a lot of sympathies for liberation theologians around the continent and, and sees that as an exciting movement um, rather than as a like an accidental thing or just like a curiosity. One quote that I guess just really stuck with me is uh, when Fidel says, liberation theology is so important that it forces all the Latin American left to take notice of it as one of the most important events of our time. We can describe it as such because it can deprive the exploiters, the conquistadors, the oppressors, the interventionists, the plunderers of our people, and those who keep us in ignorance, illness, and poverty, of the most important tool they have for confusing, deceiving, and alienating the masses and continuing to exploit them. And I just thought that was such a cool way of putting it. Like, one reason that liberation theology is so important is that it does take away religion as a weapon to be used by the ruling class and it uses it in the service of liberation
0: uh yeah i think that's really uh that's really cool that really appeals to me um uh, obviously <laughs> <laughs> of course i think it's cool i guess on that sim- a similar point uh a little bit earlier in the book uh fidel uh i guess signals towards i, I guess not like a not that there's are like a, a strong relationship between like uh, like leftist christians and the cuban communist party at this time but he does gesture toward that there could be um so fidel uh goes on to say uh i guess he says earlier um i said that we um meaning christians and communists should do something more than coexist in peace there ought to be closer better relations there should even be cooperation between the revolution and the churches because they can't represent the landowners the bourgeois the rich anymore I could be self-critical in this regard, and so could the churches, for not having worked in this direction during the past years, but contenting ourselves with coexistence and mutual respect. Um, again, this is kind of interesting because uh, liberation theology seems like that bridge for Fidel. Like, that's how he's like, yeah. um, really still um, kind of connecting with those, uh, those religious constituents amongst uh, the folks who live in Cuba, I guess.
1: Yeah, that's right. It's also worth noting that Fidel went to Chile and other places too, but importantly, went to Chile when uh, a group of priests that were organized under the banner of Christians for Socialism um, were trying to figure out how Christians could support the socialist government there. And Fidel spoke there, like they invited him to give a talk. And I think that's something that's really fascinating. He's such a, Fidel is such a symbolically important and weighted figure. And for him to be invited to a group like that and then to want to go there and try to say something about Christianity, I think is just a really fascinating um, moment. I mean, he's lending a lot of credence to a movement like Christians for Socialism, for example. And I think like there are people that would surely see that as a cynical ploy, like, oh, he just wants uh, religious people to kind of go along with the regime or whatever, but it's not that way. I mean, you can read his comments here. He's so much more thoughtful than that. I mean, he sees in Christianity, something genuinely uh, good and genuinely compatible with uh, revolutionary communist governments. And he's trying very hard intentionally to like build that up. And I think that is something that shouldn't be undersold.
0: Yeah. One of my favorite quotes from the, actually the entire book is uh, this. It's on that exact same point. Uh, Fidel says, why should we make it easy for them? The bourgeoisie, to use the religious beliefs of a worker, a farmer, or a poor person against the revolution. It's politically wrong to do that. It's not just a question of political tactics. I feel that every citizen's right to their own beliefs should be respected, along with their rights to health, life, and freedom, and all the other rights. That is, I believe that the individual has the inalienable right to have or not have their own philosophical ideas and religious, uh, religious beliefs. So it's like, it's interesting. So it's, um, it's, it is actually a pretty nuanced point. Um, it's, on one hand, a very tactical question. Like, you don't want... Um, I mean, Catholicism and Christianity in general was a reactionary force, and, like, you don't want to do that to your people. Like, you don't want that... You don't want Christianity right. to be, like, reactionary force that sort of, like, poisons your people against uh, the government, and, like, that's not great. Um, but even more, he thinks that, like, people should just, like, I don't know, have uh, the ability to believe, like, whatever they want to believe. Um, again, exactly what Lenin uh said but uh the USSR didn't really do
1: yeah that's right I think that's probably also owing at least in part to the fact that Fidel was clearly more interested in religion as a cultural force than somebody like Lenin yeah yeah uh that there's probably a very interesting paper to be written or to be read if it already exists um sort of comparing their biographies and and thoughts on the subject but I guess that's one thing I just find so attractive about Fidel right now at least in my life is that uh He just seems to really have a genuine piqued curiosity about Christianity. I remember there's this quote in the book where he says, um, he says, personally, what most inspired my respect for you, Fry Beto, who's a Dominican priest, by the way, again, to remind you, was my perception of your deep conviction and religious belief. I'm sure that they, other people of the church who have concerned themselves with these problems are just like you. If we revolutionaries thought you weren't honest, nothing we've said would make any sense. Neither the ideas discussed nor the idea of an alliance or even unity, as I already said in Nicaragua, between Christians and Marxists, because a true Marxist wouldn't trust a false Christian, and a true true Christian wouldn't trust a false Marxist. Only this conviction conviction can be the basis of a solid, lasting relationship. Hmm. Um, that reminded me a lot about what uh, Dave, the provincial leader of the Communist Party of Canada, said a little while back as well. Um, having been to Nicaragua and visited base communities, like he was saying. You know, when we were sitting around in a room, like talking about real material problems, you were just in a room of other people working on these real material problems. Like you just trusted that you could all kind of come together and solve them. And that seems to be what Fidel's after here as well.
0: Yeah, I think that's right.
1: All right, so there's a bunch of really cool stuff I think that Fidel says about how they shouldn't worry about Christians, and that's important. But I thought another really interesting part of this book is kind of uncovering Fidel Castro's own latent theology. Uh, Like, sometimes Beto has to help him understand what he's saying. Like, he'll be like, oh, you're saying something that St. Ambrose said. And Fidel will be like, oh, well, that's cool. I'm glad that he said that. You should be proud of that. (laughs) Um, What did did you make of that, Matt? Like, there's a moment where uh, he talks about, like, The multiplication of the loaves and fishes as a symbolic parable he talks about um that weird wage parable that you mentioned several episodes ago um he talks about the sermon on the mount um what what did you think about fidel's theology as he was like slowly putting it together here uh yeah
0: i mean it is clear that fidel has like a has a theology and um (laughs) it's it's good it's just interesting to see him sort of translate the uh sort of like communist formulas into religious language. I guess it's interesting because like it is clearly there in the gospel. Like uh, so many of those like good communist impulses are like, are there. Um, And it's interesting to see uh, Fidel kind of unpack them in a really like material way in terms of political economy and like the distribution of, you know, like um, of property and that kind of stuff. It's, it's a good. Okay. I don't, I don't know exactly what to say about it for Fidel. Like, I mean, like, it's good that he thinks those things. Um, I think that it's more valuable, though, to other Christians, um, because it reveals a little bit of a way that we can reappropriate the the symbols of like uh, Christian community in the gospel. Like, yeah, uh, it's cool because like we don't like I don't know, especially having like gone to like a a school and teaching at a school that like prizes its Christian education. And like, you know, I've like had to do lots of work in um doing like exegesis and stuff like that. Like I've had to write exegesis papers and like, think about like what the, what the really, what the real meaning of this text is and stuff. It's right. cool just to see someone come along that has like actually no idea and then make a comment on it. <laughs> and then you, and then like you go, Oh yeah, that's actually a really good point. Why didn't I ever just yeah. read it that way? Um, that's right. So it's uh it's a cool way to um to reread those texts and think about them in a pretty drastically different way. Reappropriate those symbols to mean something that's uh radical again.
1: Yeah, and it's interesting too to just see what parables kind of stick out to Fidel like uh, there's the one about multiplying fishes and loaves and uh he says, "Yeah, that's exactly what we wanted to do with the revolution and socialism. Multiply fishes and loaves. That's what we're trying to do." Um, And he goes on to mention that parable where Jesus talks about this guy who, like, gives the same wage to uh, three different workers who all worked different um, amounts of time. And uh, it's like, it seems unfair uh, if you're a capitalist, I guess. Um, But the best part is, I think Fidel rightly says uh, that the reason that Jesus told it was because people probably didn't agree with it. Like, they thought that was weird that you should just distribute wages and it's cool too that he says i believe that it is precisely a communist formula that's what he says in the book um it goes beyond what we say in socialism because in socialism each should be paid according to his capacity and work while the communist formula is to give to each according to his needs and uh i just appreciate that he's like well jesus actually goes a little bit further than the cuban revolution actually
0: yeah yeah that is pretty interesting uh also, I mean when I made that joke a few weeks ago about this exact same parable, I had not read this. So I I like that uh and in this case at least uh sort of on the same same wavelength here as, yeah, that's uh, right. as Fidel. That's cool.
1: Um there's another really cool moment in here where Fidel says uh he's talking about like wealth and he says, a rich man could never give back four times what he'd stolen because everything a rich man has must have been stolen. If he mm. didn't steal it himself, it must have been stolen by his parents or grandparents. So it's impossible. If everything he has is stolen for him to return fourfold what he's stolen, for he'd probably have to steal four times uh, four times as much again to keep that promise. So what's great is right after Fidel says that, Freibeta says, you're repeating something that St. Ambrose said in the early centuries. And the Fidel says, I'm glad to have coincided with him. It's like, just like, oh, cool. That's that's neat. I like. It's nice <laughs> that we uh, kind of came to that same conclusion. Um, and that's also a kind of logic at work in Christianity that you see among Catholics and Protestants alike, that all your excess is actually stolen. It's not, um, not only is it not legitimately gained, it's like you, you stole it.
0: Right. That's the thing that we always talk about with the coats. If you got too many coats in your closet, you're stealing those coats.
1: Yeah. Who said that? Who's that guy? Who's the Coates Um, guy? John Chris Austin. I mean other people say it differently, but that's one.
0: Yeah, but he's like the original coat commentator.
1: (laughs) The coat guy. (laughs) Patron saint uh, of Yeah, patron saint of coats.
0: so a little bit later in the book, um, the conversation turns towards some ideas that Christians have a lot of opinions about. Um, the the idea of like loving your neighbor. Um, and also uh, the role that hatred plays, um, and it's a pretty interesting conversation between Beto and Castro. Uh, so, Dean, can you can you kind of explain like what uh, that conversation was about?
1: Yeah, uh, it's cool because Fry Beto I think really throws this as like a soft pitch for Fidel to like knock it out of the park, and uh, surprise, he does. Um, so, uh, Fry Beto is basically like, well, hatred's kind of a thing that Christians aren't very comfortable with. Um, essentially. And uh, Fidel responds by talking a lot about how hatred is actually very good, if you understand it appropriately. Um, So, for example, uh, he says, um, Marxism-Leninism doesn't cause or preach class hatred. It simply says that classes and class struggle exist and that struggles give rise to hatred. It isn't Marxism-Leninism, but the existence of classes and class struggle that causes hatred. What really causes hatred? Human exploitation, oppression, marginalization, and social injustice. And I think that is really great. He goes on to say later on, I don't think there's any contradiction with Christian teachings because if somebody says I hate crime or I hate injustice, abuses, and exploitation, I don't think that would be against Christian teachings. I don't think that denouncing and fighting against crime, injustice, exploitation, abuses, and inequalities among people goes against Christianity or is in contradiction with religion. And I think that's just, like, a cool way of putting it. Like, well, don't you actually kind of hate some things? And it is a, isn't it important to hate those things such that you can fight against them appropriately? Uh, yeah, that that makes sense. Um,
0: like, it reminds me, like, the conversation about hatred reminds me of so many times, I guess, in, like, the Old Testament, uh, where, um, I don't know, the prophets are, like, yelling about whatever and yeah. uh, telling you to, you know, like, lo- love God. um. Like love justice and righteousness and like hate evil. Like that's that's like a actually very Christian idea. Like that you hate right. you hate that thing. <laughs> right. Um. Oh, like here. Uh, this is what I was thinking of. I just looked it up. In like Amos, <laughs> hate evil, love good, establish justice in the gate. Uh, perhaps the Lord God of hosts may be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Okay, so the part about Joseph isn't important. But <laughs> hate evil, love good. That's like some. That's like some good Christian stuff right there. Some from the prophets. Uh. Okay. Good. Um. Man, the that one commentator who said that we don't do exegesis on this show is gonna hate this episode. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but it's good it's about I, time, right? I mean, like, um, sometimes like it's uh, it is definitely the case that like, um, especially like liberal ch- Christians get like really bent uh, bent out of shape about the idea of like hate. Like, you're not supposed to hate everybody. Like, Jesus is like this like really loving character, and that's totally true. Um, but there are things that you should actually abhor. Um,
1: yeah. Injustice. Actually, Frey says that in response to Fidel. He says, uh, Jesus made some very strong charges against the Pharisees and called Herod a fox. What's more, Jesus tells us we must love our enemies. He doesn't say we mustn't have enemies. And there's no greater love for an oppressor than to prevent him from oppressing another. Yeah. Uh, that's like straight from the Dominican priest's mouth.
0: Yeah, man. Uh, I'm pretty sure that's also <laughs> like a, a throwback way to way back to like one of those Derek Ford episodes where he said exactly that th- same thing, where Der- like where Derek... Uh, he i think he said exactly the same thing about like loving your neighbor it means like stopping them from doing something that's going to be even more terrible
1: yeah that's also i think we talked about that in the context of the herbert mccabe stuff because mccabe says that in the class struggle and christian love essay which by the way is very good if you're still like working through the problems with the i don't know christianity and class struggle and violence like that's that's the one to read if you can only read one that's the one
0: (laughs) yeah for real So overall, this book is like historically important. Um, As we mentioned, I think several times throughout this episode that there's like a lot going on here. That's like kind of a first, like it's the first time uh, um, a Dominican priest ever talked to like a uh, Marxist-Leninist head of state for sure. Um, (laughs) (laughs) That's interesting. Uh, Anyways, so um, it's historically important conversation because it like builds, it builds that bridge between like world powers, between like the Soviet bloc and, um, you know, uh, the uh, the more capitalist countries, however, like I wonder what we can still say about the importance of this conversation. Like, if it's still m- more than just a historical conversation, if it's like something we can actually do something with, because like the Soviet bloc has dissolved. Like, we don't need like these these bridges between like the um, the capitalists and the communists, the and, and so on. Like, are less important than they maybe were at the height of the Cold War. Um, so I wonder like what kind of role this book plays for us now like how can we use it how can this help us think through uh christian leftism i don't know is it still important uh as something more than just a historical book
1: uh yeah that's a very good question i like it a lot um i hope that it actually inspires people to maybe think it through and um keep thinking with us about it because i feel like there's probably a lot of things that i wouldn't even think um in terms of like putting this book to use for now i guess um, I think one reason that I found it so exciting when I discovered it is that uh it's just like it's kind of comforting to know that there was a period in history and there still is a period ongoing, like Fry is still alive when uh Christians were trying really hard to think through what it would mean for them as Christians to uh contribute to leftist political movements, um, in their own right. And I guess for me, like reading this whole book, um, it just serves as kind of an encouraging word and almost like a, like a torch to keep carrying forward. Like who's going to be the next Fry Beto? Like he's getting old. So (laughs) there's gotta be, there's gotta be some other cool Dominican priests, and lay people out there, you know, trying to find like, um, I guess where they can get involved, who they can uh, talk to about these kinds of things. Like, um, like where's the Fry Beto talking to uh, the leader of the PSL, like that kind of thing. Um, Yeah. I don't know. Uh, that seems to be the use for me. Like, it's encouraging in that Fry has provided a real example, and Fidel Castro has actually provided a very hospitable response. And that's something that we can kind of hope to keep cultivating.
0: Yeah, I think that's good. Um, so in, in some future episodes of The Magnificast, we're going to talk a little bit more about um, this movement called Christians for Socialism. Um, and, uh, well... It, Just kind of, Dean, just like you, I mean, it's an encouraging word. Um, There's this quote from uh, Dorothy Soleil, who is a German liberation theologian and uh, a part of this sort of movement at one point. And uh, she says this um, about Christianity and socialism I thought was kind of uh, relevant to me because it kind of explained how I feel. (laughs) So here we go. She says, uh, most of the people I know in the movement, Christians for Socialism, uh, feel themselves in the dilemma of being Christians without a church and socialists without a party. While we recognize that our displacement must, uh, must be overcome. Nonetheless, to be honest, the feeling of homelessness creeps in paralyzing us and making us poor single fighters. Um, I think that is, I mean, if you're a Christian leftist and you're listening to that, I'm, I bet you felt that exact same way before, For um, sure. uh, homeless, uh, a Christian without a church, a socialist without a party, uh, single fighters, uh, and i guess what this book does for me is helps me recognize that like that's not really true um and that there is yeah. that there uh, there was a christian left and that there like you know still is so it's nice it is nice Thanks for listening to Magnificast. Uh, Make sure that you uh, follow us on Twitter, likes on iTunes. If you feel uh, moved by uh, the specter of communism or whatever, uh, you can give us a little bit of money on Patreon and help support getting the show made. Um, We'd really appreciate that. Okay, uh, thanks for listening.